I'm going to ask you all to stand with me as we read from God's word. And we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1. And um, it should be up here on the screen as well. So as I read, you can um, follow along. All right. It reads, and this is Jesus speaking. It says, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you've sent your son Jesus into the world to die for our sins, to give us forgiveness. We thank you that he came to be our true king and to show us what it means to walk with you, God. We just pray that as we look at the text this morning, that we would be encouraged, but that we'd also be challenged to be faithful followers that you are proud and pleased to love and to call your own. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So the year is 33 A.D., and there's a, it's early in the morning, and there's a man who's gathered around a fire, and he's with a group of people warming himself, while his friend, one of his best friends, is on trial for claiming to be God in the flesh. This man had made a decision to be a ride-or-die follower of Jesus Christ, yet when the reality of being killed for being associated with Jesus presented itself, he wanted no part of it. He, he said, you know, this whole ride-or-die thing, it, you know, it sounded good in the beginning, and they were, you know, when the miracles and all that stuff were going down, I was all for that. But this, this death stuff, I don't, I don't know. Then he went on to deny the Lord that he claimed to love and serve. And he did that in order to save his own life. And if we're honest with ourselves, um, there's times in our own lives where we're not too different from this man. And we, too, in our individual ways find ourselves living lives that are inconsistent with the gospel and unfaithful to the calling that Jesus makes to anyone that wants to follow him. We too find ourselves doing all that we can to save our lives in whatever form that may take for us individually. It may be something that's overt with your mouth or it could be covert with your life, but either way, the result is that we deny the Lord we claim to love and serve. This could be something as small as not bringing up Jesus' name when spiritual conversation happens with family or friends, or it could be something as big as lowering your standards when it comes to starting a new dating relationship. Fast forward several years later, and this is in the mid-60s AD, and there was a new man who was put to death by being hung upside down on a cross. And we don't know all the details of what took place, but what we do know is the reason that this man was killed is because he had made a decision 
to be a ride or die follower of Jesus. And when the reality of being killed for being associated with Jesus confronted him, he said, man, that's nothing to me. Let's ride. And he refused to save his life by denying the king he loved and served. And so in both of these stories, I'm actually talking about the same man. Uh, That man, his, his name is Peter, and he was one of the apostles of Jesus Christ and one of the very first followers of Jesus. So in this situation, we have the same exact man faced with parallel situations, yet we have two completely different actions and outcomes. And prior to both of these instances, Peter had already been told clearly what it would mean for him to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But again, same situation, two different outcomes. So not only was Peter courageous enough to die upside down on a cross, but, he, but his life in between that denial and his own crucifixion was filled with courageousness, with boldness, with fearlessness, and with faithfulness. Even, and when the Jewish leaders were trying to kill off the early Christian church, Peter was even willing to be put into prison, to be beaten. And when the Jewish leaders confronted him, he gave them a holy clap back in the name of the Lord <laughs> because he wasn't having it. He, there was going to be nothing that would keep him from proclaiming the gospel. Um, and so he, he wasn't scared. He was faithful and he was willing to die. And we can still see the results and the, and the fruit of this faithful ministry that Peter had today. Uh, thousands of people, the church was expanding rapidly and thousands of people came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And this Peter and his radical faithfulness and boldness is a great example for us today of what every Christian life should look like and how our lives could look today. So after hearing this, you may be thinking to yourself like, you know, man, my life is, is, is not that dynamic. I'm, I don't feel as bold. I, I don't have that same level of faithfulness. And when I'm faced with opportunities to proclaim the gospel, I rarely, if ever, do. And when Jesus' name comes up, even if someone's mocking him, I will rarely ever speak up on his behalf. I'm scared to even mention his name. It's just clear that I do not live up to what this life that Peter had, what it looks like. So what do I need to do in order to live like that? Or what do I need to know? Well, there are a few things that uh, we're going to consider together this morning. Um, But more importantly, I would just say there's someone that we need to consider together this morning if we're going to live faithfully and courageously for Jesus Christ. So to get us pointed in the right direction and living as faithful followers of Jesus, I'm going to focus on this one main point for my sermon today. And that main point is that when you know your king, you'll be able to bear your cross. Again, it's when you know your king, you will be able to bear your cross. So if we're going to live these bold, fearless, and fruit, as if we're going to live as bold, fearless, and fruitful Christians, we have to, and we want to be the type that make an undeniable impact on our surroundings, we must know our king. And so to help us do this, we're going to consider three things. And those three things are we're going to consider the call, we're going to consider the cost, and we're going to consider the king. We're going to consider the call, we're going to consider the cost, and we're going to consider the king. 
So let's dive back in at verses 34 and 35 and consider the call that Jesus is making to anyone that wants to follow him. It reads again, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. So right out of the gate, Jesus is making extremely weighty demands on anyone that wants to follow, follow him and call themselves a Christian. And I feel like if we are going to properly heed Jesus' words here in these verses that tell us to deny ourselves and take up a cross and be willing to lose our lives in order to save our lives, I think we first have to understand who he's talking to and what he's talking about. So to give a little bit of context, um, we have these two groups here. Jesus mentions the crowd and he mentions the disciples. And so the crowd was a group of people who were just enamored by Jesus and they wanted more of what he could do for them, whether it be miraculous healings or a good meal. Um, he, they were the folks that were looking for Jesus to help them live their best lives now. And so they didn't necessarily acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, and even if they did acknowledge him as the Son of God, it was more of just a confession with their mouths, but it was not an earnest thing in their hearts. And so if you were to look at who this group might be today, you might say these are non-believing churchgoers, or you could say they're cultural Christians in a sense. And then you had this second group of people who are the disciples. And so Peter was a part of this group. And these were people that had joined Jesus in his ministry. They were faithful companions and they were his real friends. And so one way to think about this is if you were throwing a house party and you've got the first group that shows up and the first thing out of their mouth is, where's the food? That's, that's the crowd. And then you've got another group of folks that would show up, and these are your real friends. These are the ones that they walk in the front door, they look you in the eye, they give you a hug, and they say, it's so good to see you. How have you been? And so it's important to I make that distinction because it's important to note that Jesus wasn't just speaking to the crowd. He was speaking to the crowd and the disciples. And he was clarifying what it really meant to follow him. And he was doing this because just a few verses before in chapter 8, there was a passage where Peter had made a confession that Jesus was the Messiah. He had acknowledged him as the Messiah, but yet immediately after that, he had to rebuke him sharply because Peter did not understand what type of Messiah Jesus was, and he didn't understand what type of work that Jesus came to do. So Peter was extremely gung-ho about following Jesus into his kingdom and all of the benefits, and he was just super excited about that. But again, he still did not understand what it meant to follow Jesus. And so Jesus was talking about being rejected and even killed at the hands of the people while Peter was looking to be exalted and to have prominence among the people. And so what we see here, it becomes extremely clear that following Jesus and these false expectations of following him doesn't only exist in the mind of unbelievers, but it also exists in the mind of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus and who would call ourselves disciples. So Jesus is clearing this up. So now that we've addressed who Jesus is talking to, let's just take a look at 
what he's talking about when he says that we need to deny ourselves and take up a cross and to lose our lives. And, and what does Jesus mean by this? And, and what he means is that who we are or who we were prior to trusting in Christ has to die. Has to die. And then to make this point clear in verse 35 where it says whoever wants to save his life will lose it. That Greek word that's used for life, it's, it's actually psyche and that means identity and it points to the, the self, your selfhood. Um, and so it's, it's this deep inner self. But, and, and when I say that, I'm not referring to when you come to Christ, you have to become a robot. But what I am saying is that when you come to Christ, this is not some superficial change that takes place. It's a deep one. It's a change in essence or nature. It's a very real death that takes place, and there's a re- very real change of identity that takes place. So we're not talking about moderate life changes to where you may curse a little bit less or you may be a little bit more kind or give away a little bit more money or sin a little bit less. Um, This is a complete detachment and departure from the old self and all the things that we're tempted to find identity and life in apart from Christ. You can isolate these things for yourself by looking at the things that make you feel as though you have value or even looking at the things that if you were to lose them, they would make you feel absolutely depressed. And again, it doesn't matter if it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just what you would look to for life or identity. And so I would say, do you feel valuable because you're associated with a certain friend group? Or would you feel devastated if that friend group were to decide they didn't want to hang out with you anymore? Or do you feel valued because you have a particular job that brings status or influence? And would you be crushed if someday that job just went away? Again, it does not matter what it is. The main thing is that whatever it is is what makes you feel good or that you deserve to have a place in the world. So in losing our lives, Jesus is calling us to have Abraham-level willingness to withhold absolutely nothing. Not even the long-awaited-for son that God had asked him to give up when he commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac without even giving an explanation. You know, obviously God did not have Abraham go through with sacrificing Isaac, but what he did expose within Abraham was this willingness to withhold absolutely nothing back from him. He would not withhold any part of his life or any part of himself to follow God. I think this is summed up extremely well in a quote that's going to be up on the screen um, from the book Mere Christianity, written by C.S. Lewis. And uh, when it gets up there, you can, you can follow along with me. It reads, The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self, which is Christ and also yours, and yours just because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you're making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it has been told before, 
you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have, nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. And this is the Christian life, and this is the life that Jesus is calling his followers to. The Christian is someone who is cut off trying to build an identity and life for themselves and instead has looked to Christ for their identity and life. And they've looked for him by putting the old self to death and giving oneself completely over to him. Um, I know that this may seem radical to us because it runs against the culture we live in and it even runs against our very nature. But if you look at those verses, Jesus is describing what he would consider regular Christianity in radical terms. And so what some may consider going above and beyond, Jesus is describing as Christianity 101. So this isn't graduate level stuff. This denying yourself and taking up your cross and losing your life. This is, you show up for class day one and this is what he's talking about. And so this is the call that Jesus is making to each one of us today. And this is the call that we must consider if we want to be followers of Jesus Christ. We have to consider his call. As we move to verses 36 and 37, let's see how Jesus makes the case for why following him is not only right and the right and reasonable thing to do, but it's the best choice that we could make. If we're tempted to think that what Jesus is, is demanding of us is too high a price. I believe that these next few verses would say otherwise. In these verses, we're going to take a look at the second thing we must consider if we want to rightly follow Jesus, and that is the cost. We must consider the cost of following Jesus, and we also have to consider the cost of not following Jesus. So verses 36 and 37 read, For who... For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? When you read these verses, honestly, they're so plain. The argument that's being made is so clear. You know, I, when I was preparing, I was really tempted to just read them and then just move on to the next part. But I do think there's something that Jesus has to say here, and I want to note that when he's making the argument, he's making both a quantitative argument and a qualitative argument, and he's trying to get us to consider the cost in terms of amount and in terms of quality. But before I go further, I do want to note something. Um, we've been reading out of the CSB version, but in a couple of other translations, the word life that's used there when it says you know, gaining the whole world and then contrasting it against losing your life or exchanging for your life, it's actually soul. And so I really like that a lot because I really think it 
does a slightly better job at getting to the magnitude of what Jesus is talking about here in these, these verses. So you're going to hear me say soul and life from this point pretty interchangeably. Okay, looking back at 36, um, Jesus is speaking about gaining the whole world, and he's making this quantitative case that even if it were possible for you to gain all the resources and riches of the world, it would not be worth losing your life or your soul, and that the cost would just be too high. So if the previous verses we read were Christianity 101, uh, in these verses we've got Kingdom Economics 101 where if you have the soul over here and you've got the whole world over here, you've got in between that one of those greater than signs, which is that like sideways V. So you got soul greater than gaining the whole world. And I don't know, that might be backwards for y'all. But, <laughs> but, but either way, um, you get the point. And then following that up in verse 37, he's making more of a qualitative argument where he's essentially saying, what better thing can you exchange for your life or for your soul? And he's asking, he's like, can you, could you exchange your, your intellect? Could you exchange your, your beauty? Could you exchange your reputation? Uh, there's, we, it's clear, there's nothing better that you can exchange for your soul. And I know that when you hear something like this, it can be a, a tough thing to hear because we live in a time and a place where everything around us tells us to go for more or to get that new thing, that better thing. And then on top of that, even within ourselves and our own flesh, we're constantly craving the more and better that's all around us. So we live in this constant battle and have to fight the fact that the world doesn't just have a gravitational pull on our bodies, but it has a gravitational pull on our souls as well. And so this can be seen when an Instagram-like is more than just a like, but it's an affirmation of your entire identity. Or it's when a job promotion is more than just a job promotion, but it makes you feel like you won't just earn more, but you will be more. This gravitational pull can be noticed when anything temporal becomes the thing that we feel like we have to have to have meaning in life. And, and, and this is an uphill battle because the allure of the world's more and the world's better can just be so incredibly enticing. But what Jesus is saying here is that there is no more and there is no better apart from him. In the gospel according to Luke in chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable that I think really captures this idea and drives the point home. It reads, And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So the, one who lays up tr- so the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So after hearing this parable, when I think back to Jesus' first question, what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life or his soul? I would say there's absolutely no benefit, and that is far too costly. And as God would say here, it's even foolish. 
This man had bought into the idea that gaining the whole world was a worthwhile pursuit. And in the end, he had to forfeit his soul and came up completely empty. And when you look at Jesus' second question, what can anyone give in exchange for his life or his soul? I would just say there's absolutely nothing. Your soul has tremendous value and nothing can be exchanged for it. And so Jesus is calling to all of us and he's asking all of us to think. He's saying, think about this. If you really took the time to consider the cost of following Jesus, even if you throw in self-denial, even if you throw in taking up a cross, you'll find that there's no more that's greater and there's absolutely nothing better than following him. And someone might say to me, well, you know, Mike, that that dude may be a fool, but that sounds like a set of first world problems that I just don't have to deal with. So this whole danger in, you know, getting in trouble with wanting to gain the whole world and things like that, don't they don't really resonate with me too much. And I can't even lie to you. I've got a few things and maybe even a few people in my life right now that I love to exchange if I could. <laughs> and I would say to that, um, I hear you, and those are first world problems. And you're right, I do not know what in your life you would like to be better right now. But I would also point out the fact that I'm not the one making this argument and that Jesus is. And so up to this point, I've operated under the assumption that we all know who this Jesus is and that when Jesus speaks and commands us to do something or to think a certain way, that we should all just fall in line and listen. And in reality, that is true. But I can also understand that when someone's making a demand of you, especially something that is this consequential, it's reasonable to want to know who this person is and what their credentials are. And it's reasonable to say, you know, look, I hear what you're saying, but why should I listen to you? And so as we take a look at these next couple of verses in 838 and 9-1, we're going to look at the third thing we have to consider. The third thing we have to consider if we're going to be faithful followers of Christ. And so taking a look at these verses, let's consider the king. Let's consider the king. They read, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Then he said to them, truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. When Jesus is speaking of the Son of Man coming in the glory of his Father, he's not speaking of someone else, but he's speaking of himself in the third person. And as you read through the New Testament, you're going to see a bunch of different names associated with Jesus. You'll see Christ, you'll see Messiah. But the name that Jesus most commonly used for himself in God's word was the Son of Man. And so, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, but in his full humanity, he's also the Son of Man, who's the chief representative of all mankind, and he's mankind's true king. In the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, the, Daniel the prophet speaks of these different visions that he has and these dreams that he has, and in one of these visions, he sees the Son of Man coming in power to inaugurate a kingdom. And he's speaking of a king that was going to come and overthrow every other kingdom 
and particularly the ones that were spreading injustice and wickedness and evil in the world. And this final great king would inaugurate a kingdom of righteousness and goodness and justice. And this kingdom would never end and it would go off into eternity. And so this son of man, this king, is Jesus. And he's the one who's calling you to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow him. So in verse 38, when Jesus is issuing this warning of eternal disassociation and in effect condemnation, to those who would choose not to follow him, his authority as the Son of Man makes it really clear that everything he's been demanding and arguing for are more than just mere suggestions from the lips of someone who has a lot to say. He is a king who has real authority and real power. And I want to pause here really quickly because when we hear warnings like this by Jesus, it can be extremely unnerving. Um, But I also think that they're warnings that we have to take extremely seriously and I think they can also be misunderstood and when we hear that we're tempted to think that Jesus is only speaking to atheists or people of other religions but I don't think it's appropriate to water it down that much and living in the south I think we're particularly susceptible to that Um, you know living here in the bible belt a common thing is that there's a large segment of people that attend church or come from a family background that has Christian principles, and they would identify themselves as Christian. Um, and I know this all too well because that was my exact experience, where I grew up identifying myself as a Christian. But if you would have asked me to just tell you plainly what the gospel was, I wouldn't have even been able to articulate that to you. And so I had associated my family background and being a morally good person with being a Christian. Yet there were so many areas of my own life that were inconsistent with the gospel, and it was clear that I had no relationship with Jesus. There was no real love in my heart whatsoever for Jesus, and I personally was on my way to hell. And I think in a room this large, and I've heard it from other people, I think that's actually a common experience. Um, And I'm sure some other people, that same story would resonate with you quite a bit. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying this to to be harsh in any way, shape, or form, because I think that one of the most unloving things that someone can do towards another human being is to give them false assurance that they're secure in Christ and that they'll spend eternity with him when they have absolutely no relationship with him whatsoever. And I'm only a Christian here today because there were bold and compassionate Christians that knew the Lord Jesus and were willing to confront me about the lack of faithfulness and the lack of fruitfulness in my life that really pointed to someone who had a heart that was still dead. But not only did they confront me, they comforted me with the good news of the faithfulness and the fruitfulness of another, and that's Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and that re- what I said with my experience, if that resonates with you, Perhaps you don't truly know Jesus, and perhaps you don't have a real relationship with him, and perhaps you are not saved and don't have the rest in your soul that comes with knowing you're in Christ. And I would say to you that to acknowledge that and to accept that is the best thing that you could do, because that could be the very thing that opens the door for you to really seek out what it really means to receive God's love and forgiveness for your sins. 
And prayerfully, someday, you can come to know him as your personal Lord and Savior. And in this room right now, you can look all around. There's so many people that are those loving and compassionate Christians that would love to tell you all about Jesus and who he is and what he's done, and particularly what he has done for you. And then for those in here that are followers of Jesus that would call themselves Christians, um, I would just ask you to please be loving enough to confront and comfort the people in your life that identify as Christians yet show no evidence of being in Christ. Um, I know that that is a tall task to, to put on you all, but I would just say love them as much as you would want somebody to love you. Because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and we have a hope that they would also want to know about. Because when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you needed the good news of the gospel, and there was somebody who shared that with you. And so I would just encourage you to do the same for them. So transitioning back, to, uh, back into the text, let's look back at verse 1 from chapter 9. Jesus states that some of the people within the sound of his voice would see the kingdom of God come in power during their lifetime. And immediately following that verse, there's a story told of where Jesus takes three of his disciples, James, John, and then Peter again up to a mountaintop where he's transfigured in this dazzling white glory. And then the, the God, the father comes in the form of a cloud and there's this rumbling, and, and God the Father affirms Jesus Christ as the Son of God with a rumbling, powerful voice and says, this is my Son, and says, listen to him. Um, and so then, given that Peter was there for that experience, right after Jesus had told him what it took to be a follower, it's really interesting that he heard those words, he saw this miraculous display, and not even taking into consideration standing there, seeing Jesus feed thousands of people, seeing Jesus heal people that couldn't walk for their whole lives and opening the eyes of the blind, it really begs the question of how could Peter be so unfaithful and cower in fear when his life was on the line for being a follower of Jesus? I mean, he, he had seen so much. And since we can read these words just as plain as Peter heard them out of Jesus' mouth, and we can testify to the, the numerous displays that, of God's power in our own lives, then why do we still struggle so much to live these bold and faithful lives that we desperately want to? So what changed in Peter, and then what hope is there for change in us? Well, Peter had seen this display of power on the mountaintop but there was something that he hadn't yet seen, which was the greatest display of power and kingship that Jesus ever would display, which was when Jesus willingly suffered a brutal, violent, and shameful death on a cross in order to break the power of sin and death that had gripped Peter and all of humanity, humanity ever more tightly since the fall. See, Peter had yet to behold the self-denial the Son of Man displayed when he stood before the very people that wanted to condemn him, and he refused to hit the eject button on his mission to save the whole world by calling down a legion of angels to get him out of the whole situation and save his life. Peter had yet to witness Jesus take up his cross and follow God's plan with absolute perfection, 
even to the point of death on a cross. And Peter didn't yet know that in the greatest act of love ever performed, Jesus exchanged his life for a people that he viewed as more valuable than gaining the whole world. The truth that fueled Peter's willingness to deny himself was seeing the true identity of his king, Jesus, and knowing that in his kingdom, everyone that follows him gets a new identity as well. Peter learned that his king didn't come simply to be a tyrant king, someone who's sitting haughtily above his people, barking orders, and being ashamed to come close and identify with them. But instead, Jesus came to be a servant king who came humbly, who drew near to the lowly, and bore their shame on a cross. Seeing Jesus for the king he really is, is what fueled Peter's desire to take up his cross and follow Jesus, even if that ultimately did mean that he would die on a cross as well. It was Peter's deepened relationship with and knowledge of his king that completely changed his identity and the life that flowed from it. Peter knew that if Jesus was willing to endure a shameful death on a cross in order to give him new life and to show him how great his love was for him, there was no part of himself nor any part of his life that he would ever want to hold back. Yet even with all of that being said, it's one thing to know what Jesus did. It's another thing to even know that what Jesus did was true and for others or even for Peter but it's another thing entirely to know that what Jesus did was for you personally. And so I would just ask you this morning that do you know that Jesus did that for you? And do you know him? Do you know your king? Do you know that when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you were living for yourself and trying to find life in everything else, everywhere else, apart from in Christ, that he was calling out to you individually, saying, follow me, and you'll see that the only thing empty over here is a tomb, and that when you follow after me, you'll find life in abundance, you'll find peace, you'll find joy, you'll find uh, hope that never fades, and a treasure that's greater than anything in this world. I would say, do you know that Jesus tasted death for you so that in this life, death will have no grip on you and in the life to come, it can't touch you? Because if you do know that, your life can look completely different. It'll be absolutely nothing for you to give freely of your treasure in ways that may seem foolish to the world around you because Jesus is your treasure and you want to display the generosity that Jesus showed you when he gave his life for the forgiveness of your sins and to gift you eternal life. In your relationships, you'll deny yourself the opportunity to clap back in defense of yourself when someone offends you because you don't feel the need to, identify, to defend your identity when you know that the new identity in Christ can never be shaken nor diminished. Or you can pass on that job promotion that would move you away from spiritual community because you know that career advancement does not necessarily mean more and you'll know that sometimes it's better for the kingdom advancement in your own heart and the lives of those around you to stay put. And I, I don't know the specifics of your life or, or what you would like to change, but I do know 
that when you know your king, you will be able to bear your cross, whatever that looks like for you. And in reality, you know, none of these things are normal and none of these things are even possible on your own. And like Peter, who wasn't able to live faithfully just because Jesus gave him some do's and don'ts, uh, we too can't live faithfully simply just because Jesus says do this and don't do this. We have to consider the three things we consider this morning, which we have to consider the call, we have to consider the cost, and most importantly, we have to consider the king. Because when we know our king and we know his cross, when it comes time for us to bear our own, we can look to our king who's already gone before us and know that the impossible is possible when we trust and follow after him. And when it comes to bearing a cross, it's more than just saying that we have to, like it's some sort of burden, but we get to because it's a privilege to follow someone who successfully navigated all of life and death and has come back to help us to do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for our king who has overcome the grave. We're grateful for our new identity in your son, Jesus Christ, and we're grateful that you've called us to be those that will follow you faithfully and bear much fruit. We pray that by the power of your spirit that we would be obedient to your word and live lives that impact the world around us and bring glory to your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.